nice and early on Sunday mornings and preparing uh, to lead us in worship, and uh, they always do a great job, so thank you very much. That song does a, a wonderful job of combining, by, by taking that old uh, chorus or hymn uh, and combining that with a, a new, uh, new verses uh, to it, but it does a good job of combining and bringing together God's glory and the blood of Christ. And as we've seen in the book of Exodus, uh, there is glory in the old covenant, but there's an even greater glory in the new covenant, which we are partakers of the new covenant through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his, God's glory, his character, his worth, his value is made more prominent in our eyes through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant. Uh, so an excellent song to sing as we think about the book of Exodus and finish it up this morning. Um, this will be our, our last time studying Exodus together. So you can open up there. I think we're going to start in 33, but we will be all throughout 33, 34, 35, all the way to the end of the chapter. So keep your fingers ready. I'm sure most of you know what holiday is today. And you will probably tonight be spending some time celebrating. I'm talking about Reformation Day, of course. <laughs> Nothing else. It's Reformation Day today. As good Protestants, we can celebrate the grace of God that was brought to us through, through his servant, Martin Luther. Uh, on this day, 504 years ago, long time ago, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, who was a German monk um, and, a, and a professor, posted his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And ultimately, that led to the Reformation. Now, Luther, if you read through the theses, he was not trying to start a mass movement. At that point, he really wasn't even trying to leave the Catholic Church. But what he did want was he wanted reform in the Catholic Church. He saw some significant problems in doctrine and in practice in the church and in the way things were being done. And so he wanted to debate those and wanted to point them out and draw attention to them. Luther had been teaching there in Wittenberg and in the couple of years prior to 1517, 1515 through 1517, he had been teaching on the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. And leading up to when he posted his theses there, his uh, statements for debate and discussion, which is what those were, his understanding of salvation had shifted as he studied the book of Romans in particular. And now he understood salvation to be a gift of God given by grace through faith alone and not on the basis of works. And so he was deeply troubled by the indulgences that were being sold a couple of towns over that were offering people remittance of sins through paying some money to the Catholic Church. And so as Luther's understanding was sort of um, not crystal clear at this point, but he had studied Romans and his understanding of salvation was growing, it grew to a point where he understood salvation to be, or faith to be, a two-sided coin. And both of the sides of this coin were necessary 
for it to be true and operative faith, for salvation to come. And the two sides of the coin were turning from sin and turning in faith to Christ. So repenting from sin, turning from it, and turning to Christ. And so he begins the 95 Theses this way. I'll get that picture of him off of there. This is the first Theses. This is what he wants to talk about. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And he goes on to discuss this and explain it in more detail and how it's not the practice of penance in the Catholic Church. It's not what Scripture is teaching. And what he does mean here is that the regular and consistent practice of every believer needs to be repentance. Now, just to be clear, repentance doesn't mean beating yourself up. It doesn't mean that you feel really, really bad for a couple of days until you think you've done enough to make up for your sin and you've felt enough guilt to free yourself from the sin you've committed. Repentance does mean a full and an honest confession, an agreement with God about your sin, an acknowledgement that your sins, your thoughts, your actions, your motives have been sinful. They have been rebellion against God. They haven't been what he requires. And then included in repentance and perhaps the other side of the coin of faith is a turning from your sin and turning to Christ and fully acknowledging and accepting your union with Christ and the forgiveness of sins that comes through that union. It's acknowledging and reaching out and accepting by faith that full atonement has been made for your sin. And so repentance involves a recognition of the terrible sin that is a part of of my life and that I have committed, the way it's offended God, and then turning from that sin to God in faith and to Christ in faith. Now, what in the world does all this talk about repentance and Martin Luther have to do with the end of the book of Exodus? Because that's where we're going to be today. Well, we've spent several weeks, I think four to be exact, talking about the golden calf incident in Exodus 32 through 34, which in some ways is the, the high point of this book. Right in the middle of that story In chapter 33, which is where I want you to be as we start out this morning, chapter 33, we find that God pronounces this very severe judgment on Israel for their sin with the golden calf. Look at 33, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, the land of which I swore to Abraham, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but here's the judgment, right? But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so in response as judgment, consequence for their sin with the golden calf, God says, I'm not going to go among you, not going to dwell with you as my people. I'll still give you the land, but you're not going to have the blessing of my presence with you. And then we find with Israel what seems to be a sign of genuine repentance. 
to some extent, they get how bad this is. Look at verses four through six. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And so it seems like they're, they're getting it to some extent at this point. And so in the story... Israel here, when all of this happens, had broken the covenant with God. They had shattered this covenant that God had made with them. And now they're looking to the future, a future without him among them, without the blessing of his presence, and without the distinction of being his chosen people. And so at this point, Moses intercedes for the people, and we saw the last few weeks, God reveals himself to Moses as a God of mercy and of grace and forgiveness, and because he's a God of forgiveness and patience and he's slow to anger and he's faithful to the covenant that he had made that Israel had shattered, he's still faithful, and because of all of that, he agrees to accept their mourning and their turning from sin, their repentance, and to go with them to the promised land. Look at 34 and verse 10. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all the people, before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And so he renews the covenant by his grace and mercy here. And then at the end of chapter 34, Moses comes down the mountain. All of that happens on the top of the mountain there. This conversation with Moses and God. Moses comes down the mountain and he reports to the people what God has told him about the renewed covenant and about his plans for Israel. Okay, so what happens next? We've gotten to this point in the story. Moses comes down, his face is shining because of his interaction with God and his closeness to the presence of God. So what happens next? Well, I'd like to do two things for the rest of our time this morning, and let me lay those out for you so you know where we are, all right? I want to show you the flow of the rest of the book of Exodus. So we're going to walk through this rather quickly. I'm going to pick out some verses and read them to you, and I'm going to show you what happens and how all of this develops, and it's very important that you see all of this, and then we're going to get to some principles that I'm going to draw out later, all right? So we're going to do those two things for the rest of our time together this morning. So let's, first of all, let's zoom out a bit to the whole book, right? We're here at the end. Let me show you where we've been and fit these chapters into the whole book. Here's the outline of the book. It's really rather simple. Let me walk you through this. Chapters 1 to 18, God rescues Israel from Egypt by his power. He brings them out. All the plagues happen here. The Passover lamb happens. Israel is freed from Egypt. Egypt is destroyed in the Red Sea, and God brings Israel into the wilderness. He brings them through the wilderness and to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where he then makes a covenant with them. This is in verses 19 through 
24. He makes this covenant, he ratifies this covenant with blood that is sprinkled on them and sprinkled on the altar there. And then after he ratifies this covenant with them, chapters 25 to 31, we get all of the instructions. Everybody's favorite part of Exodus, the tabernacle, the priesthood, all the details about the different elements that will go into this. And it is a large section of Scripture that describes the details of all of this. Now, while those instructions are being given to Moses on the mountain, Israel is down at the bottom of the mountain wondering where Moses is. He's been gone a long time. They want help. They know they need to make it to the promised land. And so they have Aaron create this false god, this golden calf, that they then ascribe their deliverance from Egypt to. And they worship this god. And we've been looking and studying this whole incident with the golden calf in 32 through 34. God renews the covenant here with them. And Moses comes down the mountain and reports what God has said to them. And now we get to this last section here, the very end of the book of Exodus. So how does the book end? Well, look with me at 35 verses 4 through 6. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, and he continues on through these verses with all of these different materials that are needed for building the tabernacle. And so at this point, they have the instructions for the tabernacle, right? They have the covenant that has been renewed. They're back in relationship with God. And now God says, okay, let's go ahead and get things going. Let's actually gather the materials together to build the tabernacle and to form and fashion all of the pieces that will go into this tabernacle. And so they put out a call for people to bring materials But they also put out a call for people to come and to actually serve and do the work of building this. Look at 35.10. Here's what Moses says. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And then he lists all of these things. And so here's what they need. This makes sense, right? I'm no construction, home builder, foreman, general contractor guy, but you need materials And you need laborers to make this happen. And so that's what they put out the call for. And the people respond. And they respond overwhelmingly with willing and generous hearts. And they go and they get the stuff they need. And they offer themselves as willing servants to the Lord. Look at 35 verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen 
or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed a cassia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. All right, a lot of detail there, but basically they get all the stuff that they need, they offer themselves, they bring it together, and then what do you need when you're doing some big project like this? You need leaders to organize everything. So now... Look down at 35 and verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach... Right? They're going to instruct everyone else in what they need to do, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamech of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Chapter 36, look at the first couple verses. These guys and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Ohad. Man, my mouth is just not, is struggling with these words this morning. Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. So, The preparations have been made, and now at this point, I'm not going to read a lot of this next section, but you basically get a repetition of what God has already said in chapters 25 to 31. And this goes all the way through chapter 39. Here's the difference in this, though, and it's important to note this. In the previous section, God had given them instructions and said, you shall make right? It's in the future. And now he's, it always says they made. They're actually creating and fashioning this stuff. And they do all of it exactly as God has commanded them. Look with me at chapter 39 and verse 32. Flip forward there. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Now look down at the same chapter, verses 42 and 43. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Stressing something here, right? Right? Then Moses blessed them 
And now, all of it's finished at this point in the story, and they put it up and set it up when? On the first day of the new year. They've been out of Egypt for a full year now, and on the first day of the new year, they put it up. Look at 40, chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And he goes on to describe putting it together. Look down at verses 16 and 17. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And then what happens? Well, Zach read it to us this morning, but look at the very end of the book, verses 34 to 38 of chapter 40. God's glorious presence comes to dwell among the people. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, this is a very good ending to the book of Exodus. I cannot stress that enough. This is wonderful for the people of Israel. I mean, think about the scope of what has happened in this book. The people have been rescued from Egypt, and despite their sin... God has come to dwell in their midst and to bless them so that they can be a blessing to the nations. They've received his law. They know what they need to do to continue to dwell with him. And now the expectation can be, and this sets them up, to be on their way to the promised land with God in their midst. Now, how did they get to this point of blessing and presence after the golden calf incident. Because that was pretty horrific, right? So how did they get here? I mean, this is a really good ending. This is a great place to be. How did they get here? Two pieces got them here. One, we talked about at length last week, God's mercy. They would not be here if God was not gracious and kind and patient and slow to anger and forgiving. But the second piece and I think is important as well, is Israel seems to be genuinely repentant. They seem to get their sin and to mourn over it, and they acknowledge it and they turn to God. Now put those two together and you get a very powerful principle for our lives. God's mercy and grace is meant to draw us to repentance. The Apostle Paul articulates this in Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is why it's so important for you and I to continually go back to God's mercy and grace expressed in the gospel. Because seeing his grace and his kindness is meant to draw us to the point of repentance. God is so good and so gracious that I acknowledge my sin and I want to run back to him again. And I want to accept and receive his unmerited grace 
yet again. And that recognition continues to draw us to Him and continues to draw out confession and repentance. So how do we know that Israel experienced God's kindness and then repented? Well, we saw their sadness already in chapter 33, but I think these chapters that we just flew over, 35 to 40, give us several ways, several results of repentance that, that Israel demonstrates. And that's what we're going to look at for the rest of our time this morning. Here are our principles. We've done the flyover. I've shown you the flow of the rest of the story. And now let's get to these, these principles for us this morning. Four results of repentance that flow from God's mercy. Those go together. Mercy from God and repentance from us. And the first one of these is a change of heart. This is one of the results of repentance. This is how you can tell in your life if you are truly seeing your sin for what it is and turning from your sin and turning to God. Repentance will not just be a change in action. It's not simply outward conformity to rules because you have to. It's not begrudging. Real repentance happens because there is a change in heart. You're not just sorry because you've experienced the consequences of sin. And consequences can be pretty uncomfortable at times. And we want to get out from underneath them. But that's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is when you see your sin for what it actually is. You see the, the heinousness of it. You see how it has damaged the relationship that you have with God and you have presumed on His kindness and His mercy yet again. Real repentance requires an accurate assessment of sin. You see it for what it is. And when you see it for what it is, that will do nothing but trouble your heart. To really understand what sin is, and how I, as a finite, mortal human being, have rebelled against the sovereign, powerful, good king of the universe, should and will, if it's the right kind of assessment of sin, lead to a troubled heart. It will lead to a change of heart. And I think you can see this change of heart in Israel. You probably noticed this as I read several verses from chapter 35 in particular, but you see over and over again that the people come with a genuine heart. They come, they contribute, they offer their service and their skill out of a heart that wants to. It has been changed to some extent here. Look at 35, go back to 35.5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart heart. Look down at verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. Verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them. Verse 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them. Chapter 36 and verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. 
And the point here is, is that people want to be involved in this. There is a change of heart. And so they offer to God whatever they can, whether it's materials or whether it's skill. In the New Testament, Paul describes this godly repentance. He contrasts worldly sorrow over sin with godly repentance. And here's what he says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, further condemnation. And you can see the change of heart here. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. When you see your sin for what it is, it flips your heart on its head because of the kindness and grace of God. And so it's an inside change that happens, but it doesn't stop there. The change of a repentant heart leads to action. This is the second result, obedience. So if you go back to Luther and his 95 theses, I want you to notice the third one of these, all right? Yet, it does not mean solely inner repentance, Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. And so the inner change of heart always results in outward changes in action. You see that in 2 Corinthians 7. You you want to clear yourselves. There's an earnestness that results in actions. Your life changes when it's genuine repentance. You'll go to whatever lengths you need to with your obedience and actions in order to set things right. And I think you see this with Israel here. And so to see this with Israel, you need to think about, once again, the structure of the book of Exodus. So one of the great questions that you always run into when you're reading this book is, why is there so much on the tabernacle and why is it repeated twice? You've got 25 to 31, and then the golden calf, and then you've got it all again in 36 to 39. The same things are said again. The same materials, the same wording is used twice here. Wouldn't Moses have been better off to just say they completed the job and did everything God told them to do and built the whole thing? Then he could have used that extra space to tell us more stories about the frogs in the ovens in Egypt. That would have been wonderful. Personal life experience. More compelling, right? But that's not what he decides to do. And in God's providence, there's a reason for that. Why all the repetition? Why does he go back? The point of all of the repetition is to show that they obeyed God in every detail. They did exactly what God commanded them to do. The Lord, it is clear, commanded these things. Look at 35 and verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Look at 36.1. They did this construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. 
And then I read to you a little bit earlier in chapter 39, 42, and 43, there is one of those summary statements. After all of the details, they did everything according to how God had commanded them. Every bit of it. And the details give weight to their obedience. They were passionate about doing it the right way. True repentance always shows itself in actions and in obedience. And that's part of Luther's reason for saying that all of life, the Christian life, should be one of repentance. Because the consistent practice of seeing your sin for what it is and confessing it, acknowledging how bad it is before the Lord, and turning from your sin to Christ, that practice, when done consistently, changes you and changes your actions and your lifestyle. Repentance, a life of repentance, is one of the key ways that you and I make progress in holiness. If you're never seeing your sin for what it is and turning from it to the grace and the mercy of God given to us in Christ, then you're not making progress in holiness as you should. It's a key element of it. One author, Tim Keller, commenting on Luther's theses, said this, Indeed, pervasive all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Growth happens through all-of-life repentance. Not ruminating in your sin and feeling guilty all day, every day over your sin, but in honestly seeing it for what it is and returning to God's grace and mercy. So that's one of the key results. The next one, third, God's presence. This is one of the ways we know that Israel is repentant. is because God's presence comes to dwell among them. So let's go back to the structure again. You've got the descriptions in 25 to 31, and you've got the actual work done in 20, or 36 to 39. Those details show that Israel obeyed specifically, but they also show just how important the tabernacle is in the life of Israel. I mean, think about it. Moses devotes a quarter or more of this book to the description of the tabernacle and the priesthood. That should indicate to us that it is an important part of the life of Israel. It's a ton of material, and it's not accidental. He did not not know what else to write about. It's very intentional, and as you study the Bible and I study the Bible, we have to make note of this. And this is so important. The tabernacle and God's presence coming to dwell in, among Israel, the Israelites, is so important because in many ways that is the very center of the biblical message. This is one stage in the unfolding drama of what is happening in God's redemption in the world. And God's presence is so important here because the whole Bible begins with God dwelling with His people and making a sanctuary, the Garden of Eden, for His people so that He can commune with them. And the goal was for that sanctuary to expand and cover the entire world and eventually to become this wonderful city where everyone dwells together and honors and worships God and He dwells in their midst. And all of that was thrown off course by human sin. 
God's presence among his people, among us, is our ultimate good. And the tabernacle and God's presence coming to dwell with Israel is an important step in the plan of God to return humanity to dwelling in God's presence. And so in the story of Israel, God's presence coming to dwell among them highlights the importance of repentance in God's plan of salvation. I mean, how does this happen? How, here's the question, how will God respond to human sin? What will he do with a sinful people? And the answer here is when there is repentance, there will be forgiveness and he will restore the relationship. That's how he works. And it's why the entire book ends the way it does, with God's glory coming to dwell among them. Chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But... God's presence coming to be with them is not the end of the story, is it? This is only the second of the five books of the Pentateuch. And then there's a lot more about Israel after that in the Old Testament. In many ways, this is only the beginning. Now they're a nation, and now they're God's chosen people, and now they have his presence among them. And so what's going to happen next? And this is the fourth result. God's Mercy and grace drive us to repentance, and then our repentance puts us on mission for him. That's the fourth result here. Notice what it says in chapter 40, verses 36 to 38. Where is this looking? It's looking ahead. It's looking to the future throughout all their journeys. And then it ends that way in verse 38, throughout all their journeys. And so what Moses is doing here is he's drawing our attention toward Israel's future and how God will be with them throughout their future journeys. And those future journeys will end where? In the promised land where they're supposed to be. And so this brings the entire book of Exodus to an unexpected Resolution. God has rescued Israel so that they can know him. That has been our theme throughout this entire study. Rescued to know him. He's brought them out of Egypt by a powerful hand. He showed them mercy. He showed them judgment over sin. He's revealed his holiness to them through his law. He's shown them the necessity of the tabernacle to mediate his presence, a holy God with a sinful people. He has proclaimed his goodness and his glory to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then he responds to their repentance by mercifully coming to dwell among them. And so what you have in the book of Exodus is God's character being put on display for Israel to see. And now, at the end of the book, Moses is anticipating what's coming, the future for their lives, and they are to take this knowledge and they are to fulfill God's purpose for them. They are to be, remember this in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests. They are to show the nations what it looks like to dwell in God's presence and to live holy lives and to have a relationship with him. 
And they're to do that as he brings them into the promised land and sets them up and gives them a good land and comes to dwell among them. Now, of course, even as all of this comes together in this resolution at the end of the book of Exodus, you know as well as I do that this is only a shadow and is pointing toward the full and the final revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ when he comes to tabernacle among his people and dwell among his people and make himself known. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And because we have this revelation, this God who has come to dwell among us and has shown us grace and has shown us truth, then what this means for you and I is that we can clearly see our sin. And that's the result here. We see our sin. We see our rebellion against God. We see our need for repentance, certainly at the moment of salvation, but on a daily basis. We see our need to continually acknowledge our sin and turn from our sin and run to the mercy and the grace of God. Because the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And the kindness and the glory of God is not shown anywhere else like it is in the revelation and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for all you've done for us. We thank you for the gift of repentance. Just the grace that you give to us in allowing us to see our sin, in softening our hearts to the point where we say, I am a sinner. I have messed up. I have broken your law. I have missed the mark, turned aside. I have broken faith with others. I am bent and twisted by sin, but you give us the grace to even recognize that. And then in your mercy, you draw us to your love and your kindness. You draw us to faith in you. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are here who have never repented and received you for the first time, that you would drive home your grace and goodness this morning. And then for those of us who are followers of you, I pray that you would help us to see that our progress in holiness is dependent on the continual life of repentance. All of life is to be one of seeing our sin and turning to Christ. Help that to be the constant motion of our hearts as we find our joy and our hope in the work that you have done on our behalf. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.